Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, it is time for Cody Townsend and me to review the news of November. And you're probably going to notice I'm a lot happier right now recording this introduction than I was at the start of our conversation because I did actually just get back from a great day of skiing. That becomes relevant in a second here. So yeah, feeling good once again. And per usual, Cody and I cover a lot of ground in this conversation and hit on all kinds of different topics. So it is another good conversation filled with definitely some ridiculous things and also some pretty important things too. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by our Blister-recommended shop, the Spokane Alpine House. The Spokane Alpine House has an incredible season lease program that you can learn more about on their website or on the Gear 30 conversation that I recorded with the owners, Rachel and Drew. So we'll include a link in the show notes of this episode to that Gear 30 conversation, And the next time you are in the Spokane area, be sure to stop in the Spokane Alpen House, or you can check them out online at thespokanealpenhouse.com. This episode is also presented by Open Snow. And as we've been talking about for a while now, anyone listening to this podcast, anybody in the Blister community can get an exclusive 60-day free trial of the Open Snow app, and that is going to give you access to all of the features that are available on the Open Snow app. Recently, right here on the Blister Podcast, I had a great conversation with Joel Gratz, the founder of Open Snow and their lead meteorologist. So if you somehow missed that conversation, check it out. But also... We now have confirmation that Joel is going to be at our upcoming Blister Summit. That's February 12th through the 16th right here in Mount Crested Butte. So come to the summit, meet Joel, go ski with Joel, and you're going to be able to hear Joel talk again on one of our panels at the summit. So get yourself to our Blister Summit this February But right now, what you should do, if you somehow haven't already, go to opensnow.com slash blister and get your 60-day free trial to check out the weather app that many, many thousands of skiers and snowboarders and the like rely on for their snow reports and forecasts. And now, let's go ahead and get to the conversation that I recorded yesterday with Cody. And as you'll hear... I was pretty salty because I was about to go skiing and Cody was like, we kind of need to record this now or it's not going to happen. So it's fine. I'm no longer mad at Cody and you all get another conversation that hopefully provides some good food for thought. Here we go. Well, Cody Townsend, I normally start by asking how you are and where you are, but I don't care. Because I'm mad at you right now. (laughs) You're always mad at me. I'm getting used to it, Jonathan. I'm mad at you for two specific reasons today. One of the reasons we're going to probably get into more at the end of this conversation. But the, the other reason I'm mad 
is because we are talking, it is Saturday, December 10th. It is now 2 p.m. Mountain Time. I worked late last night. I got up early. I worked this morning. It is a glorious day in Crested Butte. Perfect bluebird day. Terrain openings galore. I was wrapping things up, about to go ski, and just have one of those pitch-perfect early season days. And then you call. And then you call. And I called... And I said, we should record our podcast now because <laughs> I want to drag you into my world, this world where you live in the ski industry. You created a created a job for yourself that revolves around skiing. And then you get to find the ultimate irony in it all is you don't get to ski that much. So, for instance, for myself, this is uh, the second time in two weeks I am missing a big storm in Tahoe because I have to go to a work engagement. This is the second time in two weeks I'm in the Reno airport long-term parking way too early to catch a flight. So last week, I actually had to spend the night in the airport in my van so that I can make my flight um, because I knew I wasn't going to because the road was going to close. Sure enough, it did. Um, this time we're having another huge storm and I have to go to France for our team meetings, which we haven't had in about three years. And same thing, massive storm right now, like storm of the year is supposed to get like five to six feet. And guess what? I'm going to go sit in a office building in Honesty, France and be jet lagged and talk about products for three days. So I just really want you to feel what it's like to create a job in the ski industry and how little you get to actually ski. <laughs> Oh, man. The the kind of the third reason I'm mad about this is because our original plan was we were going to record this tomorrow when you were going to be like severely jet lagged. And I was really looking forward to that. Uh, I just figure like I would win all of our arguments and debates <laughs> even more easily than normal. And I, I was looking forward to the reviewing the news jet lag edition. And so now we don't even get that. Yeah. And I'm not skiing right now. The thing you got to remember, you got to think about the audience, though, man, because the audience probably would not like it because I would just be sitting there. Well, there's two things it would go. It would be either me completely just unable to talk and string like five words together at all or me just like on, I don't know, completely off my meds, probably after a <laughs> bottle of red wine and like a pound of cheese at some French restaurant and I haven't slept in like 20 hours. So, you know, it could, I, I saw the avenue, it could be great, but we're going to, we're, we're, I'm making life easy on myself, hopefully making yeah. it better for the audience that we're doing it right now and ruining your day. So it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the trifecta for you. Damn it. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so. well, all right, people, that is that is our current situation. And uh, despite all my anger, I am happy to get to have this delayed episode of reviewing the news. So let's just get into it. Where do you want to start things today? Yeah, so we're definitely a little bit behind. I think both you and I have just been in the yeah the slam season for us. Mine is kind of the busiest time of year for me. So a little mix of when the timing exactly of this is, but it was supposed to come from November. But the one thing that just popped up that I think is worth talking about was the headline and the story that the Freeride World Tour was partnering with FIS. 
Um, so, you know, everyone knows what FIS is, runs the Alpine World Cup. They run ski jumping. They run main, the, the, like the standardization uh, group that kind of runs all the major ski competitions in the world. Um, the backlash to it was pretty quick and pretty heavy. I could say I was checking out the comments in the free ride world tour and it was just negative, 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 like just absolute like shitting on this whole thing. And it's interesting because I have some thoughts that I don't agree with this partnership, but not because of what a lot of people are saying. And I think that's what's worth talking about. Sorry, just interject, Cody. Can you summarize the totality of the negative comments what was there the general theme oh fist is going to come in and this is bad for reason a b and c yeah the i guess the the main threads i saw were this is about money and the free ride world tour is selling out um so this is all just a big money grab by the owners and whatnot and they just sold the soul of free ride world tour to an organization like fist which has been around for a long time the other thing was that uh this free ride spirit of being like we as free riders have always rebelled against fists. It was the the reason we left ski racing was because of fists and the way they manage things. So we became free riders to rebel against it. And so it again, it feels like this punk rock versus the man. And here's something that's punk rock and now it's sold to the man. But to me, like it's not about the money. Like the, it, it's hard to understand the details of the relationship. It sounds like Free Red World Tour is pretty much going to be just still managing it, but FIS is going to be, it's going to be under the FIS umbrella, which gives its kind of standards. But FIS isn't something that is like just pumping money into everything. And then FIS is just acquiring things and a super rich organization. Like they actually have public documents as to what their annual budgets are. Their annual budgets for all these sports is $51 million. They're not some giant corporate behemoth. Like $51 million is like a small outdoor brand company. Like, I don't know exactly what that would be, but like, I'd imagine like Cotopoxy, they do like 50 million a year, 25 to 50 million a year. Like, they're not some giant corporate behemoth. So, first off, I would say this is not about money at all. Um, I don't even see how. Th- this would be that profitable for a free ride world tour. I think personally, it's just trying to gain more legitimacy. And from behind the scenes, it sounds like the push to get the free ride world tour into the Olympics is the ultimate goal. And this is why it's happened. I was about to start talking, but now I want to hear your thoughts on that possibility. What do you think about free riding as an Olympic competition? I don't see why it couldn't be an Olympic competition. Um, I mean, Schemo, not Ski Mountaineering. They're calling it Ski Mountaineering, but it's Schemo. Schemo Racing is now in the Olympics. Um, the Where they've been able to do free ride world tour competitions has been pretty global. We've had competitions in Russia and Japan, um, every single pr- practically European country, North America. So I don't see like it being that much of a hang up unless the Winter Olympics goes back to places like China where there is almost no natural snow, then you're not going to have the ability to run a free ride competition. But the free ride world tour is such a history now at this point. Like 
the standardization of judging, I think, has already kind of been established. And the wishy-washiness of judging for Freeride World Tour doesn't seem any different to me than the wishy-washiness of judging when it comes to like figure skating. So I don't really see why it wouldn't be. And I know the Olympics is like bleeding viewers um, and they're trying to go younger. So I could totally see it happening. I mean, at minimum, perhaps it's just going to be a demonstration sport one year and we're going to see it in the Olympics. And I think that'd be kind of cool. Um, I don't think the the backlash to the Olympics, to me, less has to do with the Olympics itself. It's with how, one, the IOC is and kind of how corrupt of an organization it is, and two, how it's treated like saving a sport. So we've watched Halfpipe and Slopestyle be in the Olympics for a number of years. In that time period, Halfpipe and and Slopestyle Skiing and Big Air has feeling like it's declined in popular culture, even though the level has continually gone up. But I don't think that's because the Olympics have standardized things. I'd heard from a lot of the people that competed in the Olympics, like friends of mine, that the course at this last Olympics was incredible, like really creative, really cool. So there's not this like, oh, it's just cut and dry and everyone's just spinning to win. I think it has other reasons culturally why it's not as perhaps big as we thought it could be with the Olympics. Um, I don't think it's a thing that saves your sport, but I do think it's kind of a cool thing. Like a free ride world, free ride skier that is a buddy of ours is like all of a sudden walking around with a gold medal. That's really good for that person. Yeah. When I saw the news, I didn't have that immediate sense of outrage or like, oh my God, this thing that was so perfect and amazing is now screwed. My take on this is, I think free ride comp skiers are freaking incredible. I think what they are doing is kind of mind blowing. I, I think about it all the time. We praise, certainly as a globally, you know, we praise soccer players, we praise NBA players. Nobody is wondering if Messi's might actually get paralyzed you know, in the next World Cup match. Like, we're not like, I wonder if LeBron survives the day. I think that comp skiers are putting themselves and their lives literally on the line and doing things at an incredibly high level. And I just want more visibility for those athletes more visibility for the tour, more promotion of it. I want more people to see it. I would hope that more visibility might mean bigger purses for athletes. Maybe that helps to bring better sponsorships, bigger sponsorships to these athletes. And I don't think that our current level where the FWT is today is um, is where it could or should be. So do I think that this is definitely the organization that can level all of this up. I'm not at all like wild certain about that, but I do want to see a leveling up mostly for the sake of the athletes. I don't know what 
the other possibility for that is right now, what the other avenue is for that. So, yeah, no, and I, I'm, it's, I'm in a hundred percent agreement with you that I want to see the athlete succeed at this. I've said it on this podcast before. I think one of the coolest things in skiing that's going right now is the free ride world tour because the level of skiing is so incredible. So high. It's so high. It's so mind blowing what everyone's doing on that. Like it's must see TV if you're a skier. So like this partnership with Fis, I think like, I don't think it's going to rip the soul out of it. Like it's competition. Like, I remember competing 10 years ago on the Free Ride World Tour. Didn't feel like there was much of a soul to begin with because it's competition. Like you're 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 in a standardized format, you got to ski a certain way, you have judges judging you, you're kind of like, ah, like this kind of sucks that someone I, I ski down and I disagree with a, a judge. Like, there's not much soul in that in general. I, there's a lot of good things that the 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 Freeride World Tour does for athletes, including heavily including them on all the safety meetings, making having an athlete kind of board that has the power to cancel a competition. So as long as they don't lose that kind of stuff, then. I think it's a bit of a wash, but I do think what Fist brings is potential for those bigger sponsorships and bigger distribution deals. So it just legitimizes it a little bit instead of some just offshoot kind of like no name thing. It's a bit more. It's like if BMW is like, we want to be the title sponsor. Oh, you're part of Fist. Great. That's like we work with them on the World Cup or whatever it is. So I think but. It could be more beneficial for the athletes, for more competitions, and hopefully for the viewership. Again, the devil's in the details on how this is going to pan out. I don't think it's as evil as what everyone says it's going to be. What I don't like, though, and I started off with that, FIS these days is a little bit of an incompetent organization. Um, for instance, I recently, my Elise and I, we watched pretty much every World Cup race. And in the past, we subscribed to Peacock TV, which is an offshoot of NBC. You could watch every single race. All of a sudden this year, we're like subscribed. We go back. We're like, sweet, World Cup's back on. Let's watch. And there's nothing. Well, they went to go watch the the Levi Finland race, um, uh, the slalom, women's slalom race. And couldn't find it. And I start researching into it and the NBC slash Peacock is only showing four races this year. And those are the four races in the US and all the rest of the internationals that are not showing. So I put some like kind of stuff in the Twitter sphere and whatnot and learned how the media deals are done with fists and the World Cup. And it is just beyond asinine. Every single country has their own distribution rights so that like if as NBC, you have to go to like France to get the distribution rights for the Chamonix World Cup downhill. You have to go to Italy and all this like it's so disorganized. The other thing um, someone that works at NBC was telling me is like it's not our job to promote and create, create demand for these. That's FIS's job. And you compare that with F1 and Liberty and how they were able to grow the sport so quickly by creating that demand. And I think FIS has just done a really bad job at that. Plus, you have uh, an executive, the head of FIS. Um, I don't know if he's there anymore, but as of a couple of years ago, was openly de- – denying climate change was just saying like it's all false well also then this year the world cup in zermatt talking to travis ganong who was there it was just an utter catastrophe and the only thing that came out of the zermatt world cup was a canceled downhill 
a glacier that they ended up having to kind of destroy to create this downhill track and headlines in the New York Times and all major media outlets how climate change is going to forever change the World Cup. And like everyone could have saw this coming. Travis is telling me like none of us believe this was going to be able to be doable at all. And so in that regard, you're kind of like, well, there is some incompetence with this. And they're not doing a great job of promoting their sports that are under their umbrella. So as much as I say like, hey, this could be good for the athletes, there's also a lot to not trust about it. I don't think it's a, this big money grab for anyone. I do think it helps standardize, has a potential to grow the sport. Sounds like Free Ride World Tour is going to be still pretty much managing every single detail and they're just under the umbrella. But FIS, they got to get their shit together in certain sort of ways. Um, sounds like there's some changes. Sounds like there's some people working on those media deals. But I, you know, I don't know. That's the one thing I would say I'm like a little distrustful about. Well, FIS, you are bringing in a group of incredible athletes and really, really good people. I think we can say as a generalization across the board and we hope you do right by them. And, uh, but I mean, honestly, I'm like, you are bringing in a remarkable thing and remarkable people. And I hope that those people and the competition, it all gets more visibility and this proves to be a good thing. And hopefully, hopefully, those who are deeply skeptical uh, about this, um, you know, are are happily proven wrong. But we shall see. Yeah. Um, all right. Next little topic. So I, maybe I live on social media too much and I'm finding too many of these topics from social media. But they sound like controversial <laughs> things because you see like piling on and whatnot. And I'm like, all right, what's, what's the deal here? So this was a, a, a pile on, a mob attack of a company, which I almost don't want to name them because I – you know, there's certain things I agree with it, the mob attack, and certain things I don't. I will go into that. But this company is doing a pre launch for a product that kind of like tracks the pressure in your skis and your turns and all this stuff. I think there's a few things kind of out there these days like that, but using technology to be a better skier is kind of like the the synthesis of what I'm seeing with these like pressure sensors and they're connected to your phone and whatnot. But there's a statement in this pre-launch, and this is what everyone piled on about. The statement says, did you know that 90% of avalanches are caused by skiers or snowboarders? An aggressive skiing technique is a trigger. This product will help you develop your skiing technique to decrease the additional load of a slope and minimize avalanche risks. Which, when you read that, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> like, really? You're promoting a piece of technology that's in your ski boot or on your ski to say you won't get caught in avalanches and minimize your risk. And so naturally, a lot of people started piling on to this. I wanted to, but the problem with it is there's a little bit of truth to what they say. Look, for the record, I'm naming this company. We just, You just bagged on fists for like 20 minutes. Okay, It's Skifi. Yeah. It's called Skifi. You can go look it up. S-K-I-F-I. And um, yeah, I'm like, man, Cody just like talked about Fist for 20 minutes and he's not naming this pre-launch company. So anyway, 
please well, continue. I almost, almost didn't want to give them more publicity for it. That was more than anything. Well, and I'm gonna. Of, I've got another bone to pick with them that I'll be talking about in a second. Oh, so, cool. uh, well, so yeah, yeah, this little bit of truth, and this is what kept me from piling on to it. So the fact is, like, if you're promoting a a product to increase your yeah technique in skiing seems like it's labeled you know intended for beginner intermediate skiers and saying you're going to minimize avalanche risks that's not your intended uh, audience for that cause because this is something in very advanced levels of avalanche education things that i've done in my ski career that you do to prevent avalanches. And that is missing trigger points, being light on your skis at certain trigger points. I can tell you a story. I was up in Alaska. Um, we had some pretty touchy slab conditions, but there was this one line up on spine cell and there's like a 200, 300 foot kind of face above where you get to the rollover where the spines are and these just incredible, beautiful spines. And I remember sitting there discussing with a guide and he's like, I don't know, it's a little touchy. And I was like, what if I just straight line to those spines? Like, not, I'm not going to make a single turn. And he's like, you feel comfortable with that? And I was like, yeah, no, I, I see it. I could happen for sure. And so he's like, all right. You know, he's like, get your airbag trigger out. And I was like, all right, I, I feel good with this. And I straight lined through, didn't kick off a single avalanche, got onto the spine, rolled over. I'm on a high point the rest of the way, ski the spine, turned out fine. Other skier in our group, kind of, we were like, all right, same sort of thing. Went and just slammed a turn right on the rollover. Whole thing slid, cracked super big, had to like straight line out of there, barely made it out of getting caught in this avalanche. And it really opened my eyes. Like there's subtle techniques that are at the like most expert level of skier and, you know, avalanche savviness that you can get to minimize the cause of an avalanche. Something we never teach in AVI courses because it takes one, really good ski skills, and two, a level of risk that other people might not be comfortable with. And three, it's just like there's so much subtlety and it's more of an art than a science and it can really backfire pretty quickly. In that instance, there's two guides, there's a helicopter. If anything were to happen, you're generally going to be rescued really quickly. We don't know really have that in a typical backcountry environment. So what I would say to what they said is like, yeah, there is truth, but not for your intended audience that you're trying to sell this. And that was where I was like, ah, I can't pile on this because there's some truth to it. It's just not, I would never sell a product with that message alongside of it. And that way, in that regard... They do need to take it down. They should remove this because if you are trying to tell beginner and intermediate level skiers that the pressure of your turn is going to decrease in an avalanche scenario, you're telling them way too much and they're going to have to have a lot more knowledge to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it seems like safety in the backcountry is figuring out any number of, say, a thousand or more things and variables and the rest. And so if the, uh, you know, don't pressure rollers and, you know, certain slopes, we might put that at, I don't know, number 862 or something, but yeah. maybe not like get, get people thinking that like, I'm good here. Cause I remember that one tip 
So if people are sort of leading with that, and like you just said, well, like you were in a situation where like what would a rescue look like and you liked your, you liked your situation and uh, not, not the situation of most people in the backcountry who have this thing on their ski. Let's just say, I told you one story about it. It's happened one or two other times in my life that I've done that and consciously gone in. This is probably going to be slide. I got to make a turn, not at that point over here, be light on my edges, slow down after, do that kind of stuff. You're like, it's not something I employ very often. It's not something I've employed in the last 10 years of my skiing. It's something that you should probably never unless you're in a helicopter and have two guides behind you, an airbag backpack and a clear run out. So it's just one of those things where you're like, it was wrong for them to put this out there, but it was like kind of something that we never talk about in avalanche mitigation and avalanche education because you're like, it's so high level that you don't want to set people up for failure with telling them something like that. So ultimately it's like, there's truth, wrong audience, wrong product. I told you I had a different bone to pick. Yeah. What's your bone? So I'm on the pre-launch page of theirs and it also says, Find lost skis buried up to 150 meters. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm like, now, folks, if you are reading this and are thinking sick, how useful is that? Let me just tell you, if a ski is ever buried, first of all, where on planet Earth is there 150 meters of snow? Second, if your ski is buried... I'm going to go with even like 10 meters deep. (laughs) Just give up hope. You don't need to worry about meter 20 or 80 or 142. So I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, this is either an English problem, but yeah, this is like a, this is a highlighted uh, benefit. Find lost skis buried up to 150 meters. Yeah. And, And then they say, then they say, uh, with your phone, you can get like, you know, pinpoint your ski within 10 meters. I'm also like, I'm Wait, 10 what? meters. I thought you said 150 yeah, like, under snow. Well, uh, 150 deep. Yeah. But then if my with my phone, I can get accurate within 10 meters. If If the snowpack is deep enough where your ski is buried and this device only gets you within 10 meters... I just don't feel like that's actually that. Like, if it was within three feet, I'd be impressed. Ten meters? I I think we're not ready for the pre-launch. You know what's interesting? In the ski industry, I've maybe it's because I've lived in it my whole life. I've never seen an industry that invents more useless things and tries to come up with so many things for, like, solving problems that are not problems. And then the second thing is, like, it's also interesting because you remember when we were – younger growing up and everyone would put the like strings of ribbon off their skis on powder days because you would lose skis so often. I think our binding technology has gotten so good. (laughs) Our skis have gotten fatter. People are better skiers and pow. I don't see that anymore. Pretty impressive. I don't see as many people like, God, powder day 30 years ago, you'd see people just like under the fingers, like tenfold people just like scraping the snow with their other ski, trying to figure out where the hell their ski is. We, We don't lose skis as much anymore. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, maybe we need to bring back the ribbons yeah. or or 
at least if you're considering this product, you might want to also just think about maybe you just put ribbons on your skis. <laughs> just buy a ribbon. So I, I don't know. I think for a style, it'd be pretty awesome. Like send in cliffs with these giant ribbons coming <laughs> off the back. Like we should bring those back just for the style element. Be sick. That <laughs> would be. Anyway, well, good luck to anyone considering this product and good luck to this yeah. pre-launch. Yeah. Ultimately, they should take down most of these messages and this product does seem really stupid. So, but I just didn't want to, uh, I wanted to add some clarity to the social media piling on. Yeah. All right. Wow. More fun topics. Where are we going next? Uh, the other big source of news was more layoffs, more layoffs at outside magazine pers. For, uh, to be more specific, and not necessarily outside magazine, but outside the conglomerate that owns tons of titles. So uh, they just released 12% of staff, um, which you know it proceeds a previous round of layoffs in May of 15%. So in the last few months, they've been laying off a ton of people, um, which I know there's a lot of bagging on what outside has done. Um, in the last few years with this new ownership group, I still want to see outside be successful. I want to see these titles that they cover be successful. I still think like some of the writing in there is great. Gloria Liu had a great, great article about the unionization of the ski patrol in Park City in this last few weeks. There, It's important to have journalists covering the outside industry. And I just think it's been unfortunate that the ownership group maybe is not focusing on those goals that we see as valuable and are focusing on other goals. And this is leading to massive layoffs. So um, kind of sucks, in my opinion, especially just for the the people that are in this industry that are writing that are because a lot of this happens these this last round is a lot in the content development world journalists and content development so i don't know it's uh i mean what from from your side you you are in media and i know you're not going to like bag on other media sources because it just kind of well is one of those things that's like we, we don't try and do that but for you like being in media experience, what are you seeing in the media environment yourself and how do you differentiate and what is like your take on what's going on with outside? Yeah. I mean, well, I think my biggest thing is what you, you just said, this round of layoffs is coming from the content side. If I had a vote at outside, I'd be like, that's the last fucking place you should be cutting anything from. I, I want to see better and more content at outside. And how about get rid of all the other shit? They, they had a strategy. They tr tried to buy a bunch of stuff and move real fast. And it's, it's a coherent strategy. Lots of other companies have done it. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what we do, I mean, people listen to this podcast, you know what we do, but we certainly, for 12 years have been about organic growth. Everybody at Blister is real keyed into the sports and this mountain stuff that we are talking about. We're out there doing it, except when you fucking don't let me go outside, Cody. But, you know, and like, I I don't know. I, I think we've never done stuff out of left. Well, I guess... I was about to say, we've never done stuff like just completely out of left field 
that doesn't ultimately come back to try to be a service to our community of skiers and mountain bikers and runners, et cetera. So like we launch a lot of stuff, you know, so blister labs, that's, I guess, a bit out of left field because we were kind of the first to create like an outdoor industry engineering program. But that all is in the interest of coming back and trying to help people figure out with more clarity what products might line up well with what they're doing and let smart engineers work in an engineering space in a way that there haven't been this kind of opportunity as much. You and I haven't really talked about it too much because we've been busy, but this new like blister plus spot insurance thing. I'm passionate as hell all of a sudden about insurance because I just want our friends, if they're getting wrecked, to not also be fucked financially, mm-hmm. you know? And so I just, I don't know, like we talk about all this stuff internally with our team. These are also people that are outside all the time and doing this stuff. And I don't know, I feel like that's kind of been our guiding light the 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 sports and the communities yeah yeah, and and i i don't always see that i and i would i would 100 percent agree with you and i think that's where it's been they haven't found success because the north star is different than what they actually do so being that outside has been really important these titles backpackers ski they've been really important to the outdoor community. And if you come in from outside with a lot of money and these other goals, the goals I think are showing to be a little divergent from that core truth that what you're trying to do is provide a service, provide a source of entertainment, provide a source of knowledge for these communities. And if you do those things, then you'll probably succeed as well. Maybe not to the goals that their ownership group has though. And that's where it seems like it's kind of a misalignment of goals. And I'm hoping maybe, maybe this will change things. I don't, I don't know. I like, I don't know the media world super well like you. I do know the digital advertising well, world pretty well um, from starting a small business and being a marketer in that small business. I learned the effectiveness of digital advertising. I would say right now, media and outside groups that create content are in the best position they have been in a while, which sounds really weird to say because, you know, this is a potential recession coming, advertisers are dropping off. What I've found is that the traditional digital advertising space, which is dominated by Google and Facebook, is pretty much dead. What Apple did to create privacy on the iPhone killed Google and killed Facebook. And those are the only ads that were effective for any small business. As a small business, yeah, it sucks. You're putting out money and it's not effective anymore for advertising. It's hard to find the consumers that want your products. Honestly, whatever. I value the privacy more (laughs) than I do as the, the ease of being a marketer and marketing my products to the right people. And what I'm seeing now is like, well, cool. Like, Media companies that talk to consumers, talk directly to them, that's where you're going back to. Because Facebook and Google ate news, they ate magazines, they ate everything that relied on advertising dollars. So now we got to go back to there. Like advertisers are searching, like, where are consumers? You're like, well, if you're in the outdoor world, 
we're right here. Um, so it's, I think there's a great opportunity and I just hope that they see that and they deliver on that because I talked to a lot of different companies and everyone's at a loss what to do with their digital ad spend right now. I know everyone's reducing their digital ad spend, not because of a forecast of recession, because it's not as effective as it once was. So let's not spend as much money on it. So I think there's a big opportunity out there. I hope they see that opportunity. I'm not going to say I'm an expert in digital advertising nor media advertising, but for me personally with Arcade and kind of knowing what's going on there, it's like, all right, guys, let's pivot. Let's work with athletes. Let's work with content creators. Let's make go to our audience by using people that create things of value for that audience. And, and I would say, kind of coming back from the media side, ultimately, if you are in the media space, I think you have lost your way if the content isn't the end game. And what has happened... I mean, BuzzFeed is a pretty classic and famous example of this. It's like they didn't give a shit about content. It was like, yo, throw up listicles about cats. That will go viral, get a ton of page views. And that's all we care about. Because if you're delivering, you know, these digital banner ads for various companies, that game for quite a while, and that game is over. Mm -hmm. But for quite a while... It was like, okay, BuzzFeed's doing whatever, however million, however many million page views a day. The content is just in service. It's a platter. The content was a platter to serve up banner ads. That's it. And if content ever is viewed as merely a platter to serve up ads, you're going to end up rotting things out internally. Right. And so I'd think there is room and there is space. And I agree with you about the stuff Apple's doing on privacy is really changing this game where it's like, oh shit. So I guess what we need to do, if you actually want to reach anybody, is media creators need to produce content that their communities actually care about and that will provide value. So now you're back into like, this is where the community goes to get their information or entertainment or whatever. And then, I mean, we have a bit of a different model, so I'm not even really talking specifically about our situation, but like for everybody else, go do the content the right way. Don't, and and man, you must've been privy to this, but over the last 10 to 20 years, so many people working in media are like, dude, I just have to sit around and bang out 30 bullshit articles a day and I hate it and nobody needs to read it. And that's what modern media kind of became. And it's like, reverse that as quickly as possible, please get back to producing things that your own team would want to read or your audience would want to read. And like, I can say, we just, if we're putting it out, we think it's worth somebody's time. And it's never like, hey, Luke, Kappa, I need you to write 10 listicles today because it's just a platter to serve up some ads. And, you know, we, of course, don't care about it and would never bother to read it. Just don't do that. Just don't do that. Totally. Well, and the funny thing is, I am in the same game. 
Like I, I'm a content creator and I have to go through the same thing. And I've always thought the same thing is like, how is this going to be interesting for my audience? Is this of value to my audience? Like the 50 was never about like, hey, come watch me do something super rad and like watch me conquer all these 50 lines. I was like, every episode I go through is like, is the story going to be interesting to them? Does it, is there a unique angle? Are they going to learn something from it? Is it entertaining in some sort of way? Because yeah, you, you, that's ultimately what you're doing. You got to think about the audience. So anyways, I hope, I hope, audi- I hope outside has a, a little maybe come to Jesus moment and kind of refocuses on some of those goals. Cause I do want them to succeed because I think they're valuable in our industry. Let's talk about veil. Yeah, is this the best thing Vale's ever done? No, I don't think it is, but I'll tell you what I think is the best thing Vale's ever done in a second. But you 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 put this one in, and I know this is a subject that is near and dear to your heart. Yeah. I think we became like I saw people referencing our podcast for the official judgment on this topic. So it was like, <laughs> I think we've been the arbiters of truth when it comes to this topic. So this goes all the way back to many podcasts about talking about leaving your equipment in line to save your spot in your first chair, second chair, whatever it is. Well, this year at Heavenly on opening day, they had signs out that said, unattended equipment will be removed from line. So our yeah. judgment, which we came, we came to yep. the same conclusion that like, you can't just can't ditch all it. your gear and just expect your line to be saved. Vale's on board and they're putting it yep. as their official degradation. So bravo Vale. Yep. Well done. It's the right call. We need to, we need to get this ethic established firmly everywhere in the world again. I'm sorry, man. The best thing Vale's ever done is still the Epic Pass. Mm. Unpopular opinion, but I am going to continue to be on the side of cheaper passes. So we've been over this one a lot, and um, I'm sorry for people who are at ski areas that are incredibly, incredibly crowded and all of that, but you're just not... I, I can't get myself to be like, man, it just was a better world when lift passes were super expensive. So, so let it be known unpopular today, take maybe. Let it be known today that Jonathan Ellsworth is a fan of destroying ski communities. Okay, no. we're on that. No. We've got that cleared up. We're uh, no. we want the full takeover. Uh, no, uh, I, yes, we've gone I over know. that, and I yeah, we have. We're, there's there's a lot of gray to it, I, and I agree with your general sentiment that like the era of eighteen hundred two thousand dollar passes is not necessarily yeah. the best era. Um, yeah. I think there's other ways and other things we could be doing, um, but. I, I agree with that basic premise that the, the $2,000 ski pass was, oof, that was rough. <laughs> and, and credit where it's due, I do think that these mega passes, they do act as a bit more security or a hell of a lot more security when certain ski areas just get blanked on snow, Yep, you uh, know, and I've, Right. And so there, there are many ski areas that truly can't, like they are out of business. If they have even one year where they're get pretty blanked on snow and seems like that only is becoming more of a potentiality. Yeah. I I would agree with you. It's not the solution. 
I don't think it's complete to solving a lot of the issues we have in, uh, in our in our mountain towns and communities and all these things that we frequently talk about here. But I do. I, there's more work to be done. I think what you just said is the biggest thing we've covered. This is that like, yeah, security for mountain employees and for the longevity of the ski resort is important. And this was a model that helped do it. I think that model needs updating. And I think that model needs some modifications to, to making it more feasible. And I think they're all looking at it right now. I think everyone is, they, they know that stuff is going on and we've covered it too much, but let's, uh, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll jump to the next topic, which, right. um, <laughs> which I'm really excited to talk to you about because this is probably near and dear to your heart but um does as a person who's a fan of a football team in the uh nfc north do you hate kirk cousins it's a great question i don't i don't hate kirk cousins because all of my nfl hatred is still a hundred percent focused and directed at brett Favre. oh wow like as a chicago bears fan like I am a huge Aaron Rodgers fan, even mm. though that's a little harder these days because he just seems to be getting weirder and weirder. Yeah, We've talked about this. I think peak at the, the height of their powers, peak performance, I think Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback of all time. He can make throws that a Tom Brady can't make. But the biggest reason I started to become a Aaron Rodgers fan is because I wanted him to wipe the memory of Brett Favre off the planet. Ah. Like, I hate Brett Favre so much. I hated him as a player. Turns out I had a, I was a good judge of character because look at right what he's been doing. Yeah. I'm on the right side of history. So I'm like, the greater that Aaron Rodgers becomes, the more everyone will forget about stupid Brett Favre. And I just want him like erased. It's kind of like in that... Avengers Endgame movie where Thanos comes oh, and yeah, just like he yeah, turns yeah. people into dust. That's what I want to have happen to Brett Favre. <laughs> so it is it is a pure it is a pure hatred directed <laughs> at one individual. There's no room for any hatred outside of that. Go um, on. Are you mildly annoyed by Kirk Cousins? Because I found this article oh, yeah. to be very annoying in so Completely. many ways. And we've, we, we're going into the golf. This article comes from Golf Digest. We've yeah. talked about it. Is it an outdoor sport? Is it not? We're going to categorize it as an outdoor sport today for this yep. topic. But there was an article right. um, in Golf Digest says, Kirk Cousins saves a golf course from housing is celebrated for it. Or actually, I added that. Um Literally, in this article, talks about purchasing a dilapidated old golf course to save it from turning into a housing development. And I was like, are you effing kidding? Like, yeah. this is, we're being like literally celebrated saving this golf course from turning into places where humans can live. So, like... As much as like you can go all in on hating golf, you can go all in on loving golf, regardless of your opinion. Don't really care. I think things rely in gray areas. There's certain parts of golf I love. There's certain parts that I think are really stupid. But ultimately, in this case, we're in, we're in a housing crisis in North in North America, and you're saving a golf course because it's like failing and no one goes there anymore so that you can save it from being housing development. It was like, oh my God, this is the worst news I've read in a long time. Like, why are we, why are we celebrating this? He should be, he should be chastised for this. He should be 
put on the level of what kind of quarterback he is, which is like mediocre to below average and kind of like, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. Struggle. But- yeah. Str- <laughs> struggles to make good decisions. <sighs> Here's the only thing that I'm trying to think about maybe why this could be a little more complicated than it is. One, we live in mountain towns. We're always talking about mountain towns. We are always thinking about mountain towns. Affordable housing in mountain towns, very close to mind all the time, right? I don't know enough about this particular community. I agree. So maybe there there are tons of other options where wonderful affordable housing can go. So you are putting me in the difficult position of like defending Kirk Cousins, maybe. And I don't really appreciate you doing that to me. But if there are lots of other good options for housing to be going in this particular community, sure, save a failing golf course. Yes, and I agree with that. I'm not going to say I did my research on the the housing <laughs> impacts and the available property and politics and housing developers in Western Michigan, but I will yeah. say just the notion of like you just get we get inundated with how unaffordable housing is yeah. in America yeah. and how there's not enough of it, and then there was this celebration of like preventing housing development. I was like, oh my god, Kirk Cousins. This is just, I mean, Kirk Cousins like. As a Niners fan, he was almost our quarterback. And that was like a well-publicized fact where Kyle Shanahan really wanted him. And I was going to be in a really tough place because that guy always just kind of annoys me for some reason. He just seems like a little just like, I don't know. He just seems weird like a guy you wouldn't want oh, yeah. to hang Super out with like, no no and no so, the, on the hangout scale cousins is like at between zero and one yeah you yeah, know exactly like in the nfl quarterbacks who you'd want to hang out with he's definitely like tier five like him yeah. and like baker mayfield you know you, wait wait who's your i have an answer to this which NFL quarterback is actually dead last on your list to want to spend any amount of time with? And I, I've got a very clear answer to this one. Kyler Murray. Russell Wilson. Duh, why did I not say that? I hate Russell Wilson. What you said about oh my God. Favre, I that's what I think of Russell Wilson. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think of him. He is like, I've been honestly rooting for the Seahawks at times, even though yep. they're our biggest rival and the team are supposed to hate just so they succeed because it makes Russell Wilson look like more of a failure. And watching them fail has made me more happy, which also sucks because like the ownership group is like skiers. They're like friends of friends and stuff. I've (sighs) seen them on Denali and whatnot. So it's like literally rooting for your friends to fail, but I don't care. I really hate Russell Wilson that much too. So yes. Every time he opens his mouth, every single sentence Yep. It, it's like, no, that was like the worst, like you somehow find the, everything is the cringiest. I, I can't, I mean, and I'm, you know, we're here in Colorado and shout out to all my Bronco fan friends. I, I would love to be able to, you know, wish the Broncos well, just get rid of that dude. It yeah. like sunk cost. Oh my God. And I, what I all like did, did the entire Seahawks organization and community in Seattle where they're like, yo, let's just not tell anybody <laughs> they did and such get a good him job. out of here. 
They did such a good job because every word he says is the worst. Yep. Yep. I, I fully agree with you. I've hated him for a very long time. Ever since there was that Sports Illustrated article about Colin Kaepernick and Russell Wilson when they're both playing and they're arrivals. And it really did the flip the switch. Everyone hated Colin Kaepernick before he kneeled. Uh-huh. Thought he was a showbody yeah. guy. Russell Wilson is yeah. this like pure, um, unbelievable dude. And it like flipped the switch. I loved it. So anyways, enough NFL talk. We're probably boring everybody. That No, uh, no that's what they tune in for, Cody. So in sum... Broncos, can we just end the failed Russell Wilson experiment? And then I would love to see the Broncos back to be an outstanding NFL franchise, winning Super Bowls. I I, I have no ill will uh, no. toward the Broncos because, as I've said, all my ill will is focused on Brett Favre. I used to root for the Broncos after the 49ers. They were my second favorite team when I was a kid because of the fact they were from Colorado, ski country USA. Yeah. I was like, yeah, Colorado. Right. But yeah. So I don't, I have no animosity towards them. But anyways, uh, talking about other places we like to root for. Uh, oh boy. This edition of our Canadian news. Um, yeah. So again, this was from, so Gabrielle LaBelle, who I actually have no idea who that is. She was on the Jimmy Fallon show and she went in to give this whole huge thing about Seth Rogen and how his influence on Vancouver and Vancouver teens specifically is like religious. He's the voice of the SkyTrain in Vancouver. They named an octopus after him at the Vancouver Aquarium named Seth Rogan, like cephalopod, which I was like, yeah, play on words. It's amazing. But more than anything, I just wanted to bring it to everyone's knowledge that Canada might be the funniest country in the world because their list of comedians that are like mm. infamous is, this is a good take. Ridiculous. Like, this I'm just is a gonna, good take. I'm just going to really read off a few of them that I looked up. Mike Myers, Phil Hartman, Leslie Nielsen, Catherine O'Hara, Norm MacDonald, Rick Moranis, Tommy Chong, which is a full <laughs> out of left field. I had no idea. Jim Carrey, Ryan Reynolds, not comedian, but very funny individual. Yeah. Martin Short, John Candy, Lorne Michaels, like yeah. incredible. Eugene Levy, Samantha B, Will Arnett. The list kind of continues to go. So just want to bring this like this inspired by talking about Canadians comedians influence on Canadians that they might be the funniest country in the world. I love this take. I think you're right. I also have never actually wanted, you know, everybody in the US is like, oh, I don't like whoever the current president of the country is. I'm moving to Canada. I've never said that. I think it's stupid. I actually like the US, not to say I like our political leaders all the time, but Learning that if I did move to Canada, I'd get to hear Seth Rogen on the train. I was like, all right, I might actually be in. I think I'm in now. So yeah. that was that's actually been the most compelling argument uh, for me. One other thing I just want to say, Gabriel LaBelle's a dude. Oh, so there you go. I don't so I feel like somehow, as you are reporting on Canadian news, the fact that you got that wrong somehow is relevant to the like here's americans trying to talk about canada ah 
Good take. Good take. I like it. Um, no, it's just like I don't want to watch anything with Jimmy Fallon. And I saw a write-up article about this. Um, I think Jimmy Fallon is really See, I actually, You put this in our notes, and so I actually watched it. So I was like, what's he talking about? That's yeah, yeah. Gabriel. No, no, I just a, read the article dude. summation of it because right. I didn't want to wow. watch Man. Jimmy Fallon. He's wow. Kind of, yeah, he's annoying. Like the guy laughs at everything. The guy laughs like you you drop a pen and he's going to crack up. You're like, come on. I would I would way rather hang out with Jimmy Fallon than Russell Wilson. Yeah, well, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, Russell Wilson's like tier five. Let's like have all of people (laughs) to hang out with. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, if I saw Jimmy Fallon, I, I think we could have a nice conversation. If I saw Russell Wilson, I would try to run away. Yeah. I will say Outside did a good article. I thought the take was a little weird, but they were saying that they couldn't root for the Broncos anymore because of the car that Russell Wilson drove, which was like kind of a bad take in general, but like it also had some good premise because Russell Wilson drives this like gigantic Dodge Ram that's like on like 40 inch wheels and looks like it's an assault vehicle that you could drive into like Afghanistan in the middle of like a shootout. Like it's just so over the top. Like I'm a macho alpha male that I was like, it is ridiculous. So it just helped me more re kind of solidify of what a douchebag he is. More reasons. Yeah. More reasons. But anyways, mountain town advice. Did we get any good questions? Relationships? <laughs> no, no relationship questions yet. It's like ah. all we want for Christmas. All we want yeah. for Christmas is to be able to weigh in. I don't know why we want to do this, but we do. And so people, maybe because it's probably your fault. You always try to talk about how there's only a hundred listeners. And so they're like, I don't know. These guys apparently, I don't know what it is, but you'd think with all the listeners we have in all of these mountain towns, we can't get anybody. What is the incentive we could provide? I will donate our kick-ass Blister Artist Series John Fellows beautiful t-shirt if somebody submits a relationship question that we read on the air, I am sending you a shirt. I don't know. what. Do you have anything? No, but I what mean, can you, do? you did just kind of like prove my point that we only have a hundred listeners. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I've gotten way more than a hundred people like DMing me or emailing me, calling themselves like, hey man, I'm your 101st listener. So just like I could show you all the emails and DMs, that itself would prove that, you know, there's more than a than hundred, but apparently not more than a hundred or even one that care to have us weigh in on their relationships. <laughs> so what do they have us care? What do they want to weigh in on today? Actually, so here, let me read this one. This is how it starts from Adam. Hey, Jonathan and Cody, sorry, but this won't be about dating or relationships <laughs> or sex in the mountains. That's literally the opening sentence. I live in Hawaii and have been here with my wife and son for about 18 months. We will probably be here another 18 months before moving back to somewhere that we can ski on a regular basis. Since we are basically halfway there, we want to go skiing in Japan next winter. Not a bad thought. But something about planning a trip in a totally new country is daunting and very unfamiliar. I'm going to try to pay more attention this year to specific ski areas. That would be a good option. 
But do you have any tips or advice for planning a trip like this? We don't have any ski passes, obviously, so we aren't tied to any particular mountain. We also have a three-year-old son who will be four when we take the trip, and we would like to get him sliding around with sticks on his feet, too. Thanks for the help, guys. So, um, first part of the email, I would just have told people, just be like, just like, book a hotel and just go and figure it out when you get there. I mean, I've had to do that so many times in my traveling history that it always works out. And it actually is really fun when you just kind of have to figure it out. And I think it can take some of the joy out of like planning every little step of the way to get to that place and trying to lead yourself to these expectations. Like we want to go to the the least crowded, most powdery best resort in Japan. And it's like, no, like you're probably going to have fun wherever you end up going. So I would most likely say that, but then they throw the kid in the mix and having a kid and traveling with it. I'm like, "Mm, you do have to get a little bit more planned. So like, I don't, I'm not going to give out specific tips for Japan itself because my general take with Japan is pretty much anywhere you go is going to be awesome. I've been all over Japan and everywhere I've gone was awesome for whatever reason. So to me, it seems like the thing with booking these trips is just securing lodging first. Like just get your lodging. And what I would say with a kid is try to find that kind of lodging where there's enough service. You might have to pay a little bit more where they're going to pick you up or give you the very specific instructions on what trains to get on, what trains to get off on, and then have service to the ski areas or wherever you're skiing. So like looking for ski specific lodging, I think is really important. Um, places like Black Diamond Lodge. They're like, there's some names that you've seen in the ski industry. You can find in ads and magazines. You might get some like things just pop up. I would just honestly like you're gonna have a good time wherever you go in Japan. I wouldn't try and set unrealistic expectations of we're trying to find the best skiing. We're trying to find the least crowds, the most powder. Like there's general regions like the kind of Nagano main, uh, main island region. And then there's the North Island near Hokkaido. And you just, just book a lodge and go and figure it out with a kid. Japan is going to be awesome. The onsens are amazing. They're really kid friendly. The service is incredible. Food might be a little difficult for young kids, but there's probably enough rice and enough basic eggs that they're going to be able to get around the fermented fish. So um, honestly, it's just finding exactly where you're going to stay is key. I found that when I was booking our trip, our vacation this summer for Elise and I, when we went on a surf trip, like once I found the lodge, the hotel we were going to stay at, everything else fell into place. So it's just like focus on the the hotel, the, the B&B, the whatever it is, the slopeside lodging, find that place, go there. Don't worry about the mountain. Don't worry about the snow. Don't worry about anything, but just finding that one good place. Okay, but can we get just a little more specific given, I mean, you mentioned Black Diamond Lodge, have fond memories of Black Diamond Lodge, Mm -hmm. but if you're bringing a three-year-old, I'm assuming, maybe incorrectly, you're not going to be trying to do much ski touring. That might be a very incorrect assumption here, but 
If you're looking to be riding chairlifts and skiing and bounds and you've got a three-year-old, so you want lodging close, I mean, if, if I would say if you're really starting from scratch, check out Niseko Village, yep. dig around, and then you'll that it could be like a place to kind of start from, and then you're going to find a lot of other options from there. But there's your quick and dirty um, start there, and you can kind of work your way out, I'd say. My thing with Japan is there's two main things you should do. Go in January. December, January is your time when you get the most pow, the best skiing. And I really am fond of the Hakuba Valley. Um, there's four major ski resorts there, um, including Nagano, where they have the downhill. There's Cortina, which has amazing side country access, um, really easy backcountry pow skiing. Um, technically, ducking ropes in Japan is illegal. This place, Cortina, you can ski out of bounds. They have gates for it. Um, there's a few other skiers in that vicinity. You stay in the valley. There's amazing food, amazing culture. Find a, a ski lodge there. There's plenty of very ski-specific places that will shuttle you each to each resort on a given day. Whatever it is, it's great. Okay. So I was kind of ruling out Hakaba because I think of it as more of a touring inside country joint, and I'm not. But so yeah, if I'm, if my assumption was wrong, listen to Cody. Yeah. So, um, and I like the North Island too. North Island's good. I I honestly the one thing with. Uh, the North Island and going to um, why am I Niseko is that there's a little less of a cultural feel there. There's a lot more yeah. tourists there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Remember going into a bar there and it was jam packed. And our buddy who lives there, Tatsuya, he was like, he clicked at me. He's like, I think I'm the only Japanese person in here, <laughs> which was pretty wild because it was so packed with tourists. So uh, that's right. I. I keep staying focused on the fact that he's traveling with a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. I would think that you would be the person keeping that more to mind than me. You're like, oh, well, you want the more culturally rich experience over here. I just like, I'm still thinking about you're basically walking around with like a sort of a living grenade that's trying to kill itself at every moment and not letting you sleep. So, man, am I the like more compassionate parent at this point right now i just want this dude to like no not hate his trip i would say because i say cultural because like the it's niseko is very crowded it's very lively there's big nightlife and all this stuff it feels like kind of almost like a european ski town to me it's like bringing a kid into a lot of the Japanese kind of ski culture and whatnot is perfect because it's like relaxing, it's onsens, it's super easy going, you know, there's food every morning. Like I've never stayed at a hotel that didn't have breakfast, lunch and dinner included. It's kind of part of the thing there. So that's why I would say it's actually a little easier as opposed to okay. when I have stayed in Niseko, I've stayed in places gotcha. where we had to go out to dinner and go out to breakfast every night. So like the more Japanese traditional places have like right. they're more B&B style. So that's why I'm saying I kind of picture it as being less chaotic to okay. go to places that are a little bit more under the radar, a little bit off the beaten path. Not that Hakuba is pretty known at this point, but um, that would be my suggestion is just going a tiny bit off the beaten path is actually a really good thing for him. Hmm. Adam, that probably wasn't very helpful at all. So <laughs> I guess you're welcome. Yep. Good luck though. Uh, let us know how it goes and where you end up. And again, first person to send us a relationship question 
Adam opens by specifically saying how he's not doing that. So that's why we didn't give you better answers, Adam. Come on, people. Let's uh, let's let's do this. We're going to end up giving horrible relationship advice. And then everyone will be like, see, that's why we didn't write in questions. Yeah. But but it's we're unproven right now. As far as we know, we are the greatest relationship advisors on planet Earth. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> no one has refuted that fact. That's right. That's right. All right. You need to get going soon. I don't. My flight's being very delayed, so we can. We oh, can, yeah. Like I would actually say, we let's jump into uh, <laughs> what we're what we're reading and watching. I'm going to okay. be sitting here for another few hours. <laughs> okay. Wow. So you actually, so you ruined my ski day for no reason whatsoever. Mm. Like I could have gone and skied, then come back and recorded this. No, I told you I, ru- I ruined it for a very specific feeling because I wanted you to feel what it's like to, <laughs> to you know, base your, base your career in the ski industry and get to ski less than you thought. Misery loves company, huh? Yeah, exactly. All right. I was traveling quite a bit this past month, so I did more movie watching than I've done in quite a while. So I have quite a list, but um, do you want to do you want to start? Um, well, no, I don't want to start because I want to finish with a topic (laughs) and there's some spoiler. It's going to happen. So I think we got to finish with that topic. So I want to hear what you're watching on your travels. Okay, here here's a a kind of a quick, quick take uh, on some of the, the films I've watched. I did finally get to see the movie Nope. Right, the Jordan Peele yeah, film. Yeah, see that. It's funny. I didn't love it in real time necessarily, but I keep thinking about it. And by the way, Jordan Peele, probably best known, um, he directed the film Get Out, which is talk about a film I still think about, and that is a terrifying film. And I, I actually recommend everybody sees it. I didn't see his second film, Us, but I then did watch Nope. Interesting, interesting film, and I'm going to leave it at that because it's a pretty hard film to talk about. I then watched Top Gun Maverick for the second time, and I texted you, Cody, and part of my text said, if Top Gun Maverick doesn't win Best Picture... There is no justice in the world and we should just we can just dismantle the Oscars. And this also is why some of you if you follow us on social media saw I shared a text that I got from Paul Forward talking about how it was like man I usually agree with you like your takes on ski equipment and your takes on media in general but Paul Forward was like Top Gun Maverick sucked. <laughs> So I posted this, I posted the text message with the note, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but Paul Forward is effectively, effective immediately fired from Blister for his bad movie takes. And I just want you to know, Paul Forward, I got like 300 people all replied to that story and every single person was like, yeah, Paul is absolutely on the wrong side of history. Not one person was on Paul's side. So anyway, there was that. Top Gun Maverick absolutely holds up on a second watch. What a great film. Ridiculous? Yes. Amazing? Yes. Two things can be true. Moving moving on. Uh, here's my review of Bullet Train. You know this movie? This is like the Brad Pitt thing where it's yeah. like they're literally stuck on a train. 
my note on that was this is a perfect movie to watch on a plane at 3 a.m. on three hours of sleep and two glasses of wine deep. Fantastic film under those circumstances. Critics hated it. I did not. Perfect plane movie, sleep deprived, couple of wines, a uh, couple of glasses of wine deep. I think the the airplane viewing completely changes everything. Like it, yeah, there's everything. something about like, so I remember I've watched all the Maze Runner movies, which are like kind of like, wow. I, yeah, I, I think it's like teen fiction, kind of the Hunger Games kind of deal, that kind of style. And I yeah. was so entranced in those movies, but I guarantee if I watched them in like, a normal setting in my home, I'd be like, this is awful. I got to turn this off. Something about the elevation. There's something about the the wine. There's something about the seat. There's something about the setting where like all of a sudden movies that are one high in action are just like so enjoyable. Like the dumbest yeah. movies become really enjoyable. So I, hmm. I, I like that. Okay. Have you seen Bullet Train? No, I haven't. But you kind of, I'm about to take a very long flight. So I, I'm. It, I'm yeah. It, w- w- save it till you're real tired and it's real late. Yeah. And then, and then dive in and, and tell me, tell me you don't have a good time. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I generally, I, I am attracted to those mo- kind of movies on the plane. So it's okay. right up my alley. One, one more thing I want to reference uh, or mention. I watched this documentary, it's a Tony Hawk documentary called until the wheels fall off and um i mean first of all talk about if we're ever going to throw around the word icon i mean tony hawk and skateboarding it's a proper use i think i really enjoyed the documentary real learned a lot about tony and his upbringing and his mentality and the rest and i don't know i you know growing up it was like well yeah there's there's the best skateboarder of all time. And then I think it's been really remarkable how he has grown into this incredible ambassador for the sport. I had no clue of the like the psychological state. Hmm. And the punchline would be for those who've seen like Michael Jordan last dance, there's way more of a perfectionism to Tony Hawk. It's, it's different in that I, he doesn't come off like Jordan in that he's like, I, I want to murder every single person that I'm stepping onto the floor to compete against. Mm-hmm. It's less that, but my God, the intensity, the absolute commitment to performing a certain trick just a a a maniacal maniacal commitment to that um i didn't really know and it's i mean it's it's actually like both a little bit disturbing and somehow completely laudable to me and anyway i found it fascinating if if people haven't checked it out it's called until the wheels fall off i quite enjoyed it yeah, sort of. I mean, it goes back to my theory, and we've talked about this. It's like the greatest athletes of all time yeah. are yeah, they're weird people. Um, and yep. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that they're different than all of us. Wired different. And that's why they are who they are. Uh, fun yep. fact, did you know my uh, – uh, actually, two things. Fun fact, did you know Tony Hawk was a mistake? 
in the sense of his parents had him. Yeah, yeah, I do. And honestly, it's a significant part of the 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 documentary and I think his story. Whoa. Because so I knew that 30 years ago because my dad was best friends with Tony Hawk's sister. We went to high school together. Wow. And he wow. remembers being graduating and them having a baby and their whole family being like, oh, shit, we've got to, you know, our last kid is graduating from high school and 18 years later, we're having a kid. So, yeah, I remember being a kid and hearing that. I'm like, what? I want to meet Tony Hawk. Like, you're best friends with his sister? Like, that was amazing. But anyways. So, so actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's a significant part of the documentary. Interesting. Think about what I just said. Yeah. Think about what I just said and think about what you just said. Yeah. No. So that's, and, I mean, I used to joke around about that and it was like a joke because my dad told me and my mom and or his friend told me, his sister. And it was like, so yeah, I mean, I guess that probably did have some impact on him. I definitely have to watch that because yeah, it's always been interesting. Yeah. So when are we going to talk about the bear? Now. Okay. So I watched the bear and I want to say some things. And I will say, if you're listening to this right now and you have not watched the bear, turn off the podcast because we're going to get some big spoiler alerts. Um, So yeah, here's your time. Yeah. Turn it off. So. Well, wait, two things. Wait, yo, stop listening, but go watch the bear. Yes. Please. And then come back. Okay. Yeah. And then come back later. Okay. So I, uh, yeah, downloaded Hulu. I got a subscription for the month. I watched it and I would say it was, as you said, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, there has not been a TV show in my opinion that is intense and well shot and make you feel a part of being there quite like the bear, like the storytelling, the cinematography, the way it comes together is I mean, I felt like I was getting like anxiety watching it. Like I would not say it was an easy watch. Like it was kind of like a struggle to like get up the energy and to watch it. But you want to know what happens to these characters. I thought they just did an absolutely brilliant job of like kind of defining this life of a restaurant, defining what it's like to be on the edge of poverty, on the edge of the fringes of society, the kind of the underbelly worker class in many ways. Um, it was is really, really beautiful. And I thought it was a really great show. But I did have a massive problem with the last five minutes. And mm. I thought the the ending, last the last five minutes of the last episode. Yes, the last five minutes of the entire series. I thought it contradicted everything the show stood for. Um, and the spoiler alert: when he, when he finds the money from his brother that committed suicide, and it is so much money that all their dreams come true and everything is rosy was like straight out of to me like the producers of hulu of fx telling them they had to do that make this hollywood ending because the whole show to me was about dreams and how your own dreams can destroy you and destroy everything around you this feeling of idealism and the things you're working for can turn you into the person you're not like Carmi turned into the thing he loathed most 
because he was dreaming of turning this restaurant into something that he knew it could be and dreamed of. The baker, I don't remember many people's names because they always call everyone the chef. The baker almost destroys the restaurant because he gets so enraptured by the art of cooking, which is beautiful, but that it almost destroys his ability to be an actual baker. Sydney, her dream of like being that young idealist, like let's do everything correctly, almost kills the restaurant when they do the to-go orders. I even look at um, uh, Richie, like his idealism of keeping it like hardcore for the working class down home restaurant. He's actively destroying himself in the process to make sure it stays that way. So then for the entire thing to flip and be like, and all your dreams come true because you have a ton of money and now you can build your dream restaurant was like the antithesis of what it stood to me, what I really took from it. And I was really, really disappointed with it. I said at the top that I was going to get mad at you again at the end. And and actually, and so I'm not mad. I actually think you're saying a lot of smart things for, for once. So I appreciate that, you know, hey, like, fuck you. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. This was supposed to, because we had to, we pushed off this reviewing the news from a week ago. And then Cody said at the top, we got, we both had pretty extraordinary weeks, but I'm actually going to publish as our next open mic piece, the exact text exchange that you and I had about the ending. And my take is I think you are saying some really, really smart things. And if we were, you know, doing PhDs in film theory, I think you'd score well on this. But to me, just for the record, I love the ending and what it really comes down to. And you'll see this in the open mic thing I'll publish. I think that often in film and in novels, there's a real question of whether you as a viewer or reader feel like the ending was earned, earned or unearned. And, and Cody's take on this is he doesn't feel like that ending was earned. And it was just inconsistent and out of line with everything we've seen in the whatever, seven or eight episodes. I make the case that we've been seeing the seeds of this planted from episode one throughout. By the way, another one thing where we might disagree on, they the restaurant is in debt, something like $300,000. I don't know that we know exactly how much cash is found at the end, but you're, whole, you're like, oh, they just, now they have no financial worries? I'm not sure that maybe they just aren't in massive raging debt, right? So they can clear up the 300K in debt. I guess it just made it seem like it because they were like closing the original beef and he put the thing for the bear to come to they were going to build their dream restaurant. Was what, so, so that's what it kind of – to me, it was less significant on, I guess, the exact amount, though I do have a take on the amount, but that – Why? From your former – your past days of drug dealing – yeah, made totally. you like started doing the quick math. So when you get an eight like ball, that. it's like <laughs> <laughs> how much cash do you think they got? 
Oh, yeah. I guess 300000 was in my head because of that debt thing. I also was led to believe that that debt might not actually be and that the, the, whatever the guy that they were indebted to was kind of just stringing them along in a certain way. I forget what the exact line to it, but it almost seemed to me like they figured out like they had paid that off. From it. Oh, it was when he was going through the ledger and he's like, what's all this money for? What's this going? He's like, it says $300,000 and that's exactly what we owe that guy. So I, I got this impression that they might have are he was almost faking that they were in debt to him because his brother no no yeah. no 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 so if it and and the, like yeah they didn't what's one of the things i like about the show they don't just spell everything out no. super nice and neat all the time and we'll learn thank god there's going to be a season two i'm excited for it maybe cody's not but we'll we're going to learn like how much cash was there or whatever but to me it seemed like there was enough to wipe this 300 grand owed to Cicero and be able to start to some extent, maybe to a big extent, like a remodel and kind of start a new restaurant over. I mean, it's funny to me in part, you and some other friends who I basically forced to watch this show, a number of you had this reaction of like, it's so intense and kind of anxiety inducing that I, I have trouble watching it for some reason. I don't know. I just found it so riveting and I was absorbed. So I had a little different take, but I loved seeing things come around. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have the same take that like now they have all the money on earth. There's no longer any real life problems in it for, the, for any of them. I didn't have that take, but I love these characters so much that I am excited now to see kind of where they've come on this journey. And I keep thinking about this sounds real pretentious and I'm sorry, but Tolstoy has this line where he's like, all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are different. And this goes back to like a line that like, why is it so frequently that the great literature or the great films are often these dramas that are all anxiety induced and tragic things happen. If the writers in season two, Pull off a show like Pivot, go from doing a show that is wild, intense and anxiety inducing to like, what if we actually just got to see these characters we really like kind of pull together, like work well as a team and pull together a, a, a neighborhood restaurant that is thriving and it's great that's way harder than like if you and I wrote a show and it's like, I don't know, let's just have like the main character's kid get run over by a lawnmower in episode two and we're all real sad. You know, like I, that's a it's I, I'm a little tired that we sometimes just always tend to praise the tragic. And I think that's one of the reasons why Ted Lasso was so well received. It it did actually pull off like some uplifting stuff. There's heaviness in that show too, but it, it was able to pull off. Like we get to see this team where people like each other and they function well and we celebrate their victories. And like, that's actually really hard. Yeah. And I agree. I think the challenge for season two is may bigger than the challenge for season one. Yeah. Um, I yep. do. I'm like, where do they go from here? Because that was where yeah. like my take was that 
I got this feeling that it was like all they're all happy and they're debts free and they're opening their dream restaurant. To me, I would have almost rather see because like a lot of it was about the struggle of coming back to the original beef, which is brother Ram. Carmi's brother was just had this very specific relationship that drove him to be one of the best chefs in the world. Um, and to just see that there was like some money left behind and that little note would have done it for me of just being like, no, like I was thinking of you the entire time and I was almost protecting you from me was the message that I felt like would have been more appropriate. Not like, Hey, I solved all your dreams. Like, I I don't know. It was just a little too happy for me, I guess, because the whole thing was so intense. So that was it. It's not that big of a bone to pick in all things. Cause I don't think, the ending was, you know, it's like it didn't redefine the show for me. I was just like disappointed. I was kind of like, ah, really? Like that was how it ended. Um, so ultimately, I still think it was a great show. Um, I, yeah, I would recommend people watch it. I love the cooking aspects of it. I'm a total nerd for that kind of stuff. And I, I thought the acting was absolutely amazing. And I think it had one of the funniest moments in TV, recent TV history when they Xanax that entire kids oh my party. God. That was unbelievable. I was laughing my ass off. See, that's that to me, that was the most terrified <laughs> that scene. I was the most terrified of any scene in the entire sh- uh, season because I thought they killed the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so we're having some funny, like different reactions on some of this stuff. But um, I will say, I, I you know, I, I told you this when I went and watched it again, there's so much humor in the show yeah. there. And it's, it's kind of under the breath. It's not given with these big punchlines or whatever, but there, there is a lot of humor happening in a show that, as you've said, is also like, really intense and um i i still love it and our our guys for the record our 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 friends chris ryan and andy greenwald nobody neither of those two had a problem with the ending it, huh. it's never come up i've heard what they talk about it they both love the show so while i still think and i still get where you're coming from I, I don't feel the force of that. I actually quite enjoyed the ending. And it's, it's frankly, it's fun when people have different opinions on these things yeah, and they're actually to, they're able to say why it didn't quite work for them. And anyway, so yeah, as much as I'd love to tell everybody how mad this makes me at you, I actually, I was like, he's saying some really smart things. I'm just glad that it didn't, frankly, like it hasn't deflated the ending for me. Yeah. And mostly I'm just really excited to see where they go next yeah so well i'm glad i watched it ultimately glad we have this conversation i always find it interesting when it comes to media when it comes to things how you know my own perceptions events emotions in my life can interpret things did so differently because i read a lot into that like dream idealism like going for these things and how it destroys you that might not have been what the writers were going for i just saw it you know or they were and so like there's so many different ways you can interpret it so i always like kind of these conversations because they're just in this regard like yeah i i saw that dream aspect of uh of this Hmm. idealism that almost destroying people in the process Hmm. was really entertaining Mm -hmm. it got me really thinking about it so yeah Hmm. (laughs) well 
I don't know. Did we just do 20 minutes on the bear? Yeah, we probably did. Probably everyone's turned off by now, so it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, man. So are you really just stuck? Yeah, I'm going to go in there because I don't know if I'm going to make my next flight at this point. So I got to go and check in and see what's going on. Yeah, it's... Oh, meaning meaning you're not going to miss it. You're just worried it might not go. Well, I have a connection, Reno, San Francisco, San Francisco to Zurich. So uh, I, I, yeah, I might be already being very close to the edge to missing my next flight. So yeah, totally. Well, if you do miss it, maybe call me back and we'll, we'll do next month's reviewing the news and we'll just like talk about what we assume will happen in the rest of the month of December. Okay. So our take on the, the 10 feet of snow that Colorado got on December (laughs) 23rd. (laughs) Exactly. Hey man, I am really, really sad. I didn't ski today, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that if I'm not skiing, you're not skiing. We, we at least did it together. And, uh, as always, I do appreciate the conversation. So uh, thanks for another good one. Yeah, that was a good one. So cool, Jonathan. Till next month. Till next month. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody, as always, for the conversation. And let's see, hopefully by the time you are hearing this, I will have posted the written exchange that Cody and I had about the ending of the bear. That's going to be posted in our open mic series. So if it's not already there when you hear this, I will at least have it up by Tuesday. So check that out. It's actually pretty good. And if you thought the conversation here was interesting, I think you're going to enjoy our written exchange as well. Now, I also want to just issue a reminder, if you are somebody who does not have insurance or you are like most of us out there, maybe you have insurance, but you have a high deductible, please do check out this Blister Plus Spot membership and coverage that we are offering. We just want to make sure that everybody is covered and isn't going to get wrecked financially if and when those injuries come. Okay. Other than that, I want to, as always, thank Taylor Ahern for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening. And if you are still enjoying these blister podcast conversations, we would very much appreciate it. If you would leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And we promise then to just keep this whole thing going and growing. Oh, and one last note, if you are a blister member, We are doing our next Blister Happy Hour. That's going to be this Wednesday, December 14th at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, where we're going to have a number of our reviewers in. We will live stream this. So if you have any questions or want to chop it up with our reviewers, then you ought to join our happy hour on the 14th at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You just go to the Blister Clubhouse section to get the link for that live stream and these have been really fun and i'm looking forward to catching up with our crew and hearing what thoughts questions etc you all have this time around all right so we'll catch you over on happy hour this wednesday and we'll talk to you real soon